You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. much fuller this service than last service. There's a, a lot of sickness going around right now, so I'm glad you are all well. And those of you who are online, I'm glad if you are at home and not here, just for the sake of not getting anyone else sick. We do appreciate that. A um, lot of sickness going around. We get a lot of calls throughout the week um, to actually create a little bit of challenges. We almost did not have preschool this morning, um, just for the amount of people that are sick. And I do want to give a really big thank you to anybody that volunteers at any of our um, any of our ministries. We really appreciate it. Um, however, particularly around the cold and flu season, it gets really, really thin, and we we cannot run without a whole army of volunteers. And so, I would ask you to prayerfully consider, if you haven't done so already, serving in one of the ministries as a backup and being able to help us out and being on a list that we can call and saying, "Hey." We've had 13 people call it sick. Are you available? Um, so if you would please prayerfully consider that, we would greatly appreciate um, some extra hands, particularly during this season. So thank you in advance for considering that. We are continuing in Genesis. Uh, we are wrapping up the foundations of the foundations today. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis set up the whole Bible for what it is. You can follow every major theme of the Bible can be traced back to Genesis 1 through 11. I did not realize that the very f- when we first started this little adventure. And so we've come across a lot of really big things in a short period of time. Um, and the last two chapters are going to be more of the same. Uh, they are written to be together, chapters 10 and 11, so we're going to tackle both of them today, and their genealogies, so you know they're packed full of rich and exciting content. Um, but it actually is. Um, there's a lot of things I've discovered through going through these genealogies and the things that we've been able to pull out, and things that I never saw before, simply by writing it down and seeing who was still alive. And so we're going to get to that at the end of the service. But it was just, I had this really huge aha moment on um, Wednesday night as I was going through this. And it's like, I had no idea. Because every time I've read this, I've just glossed on by as quickly as I can because it's terribly repetitive and boring just to read it. And so we have to do more than just read the scriptures. We have to ponder them. We have to dwell on them. We have to chew on them. We have to do more than just read them or it's terribly boring works. Um, unless you get into kings and that's exciting, everyone dies. Um, but these, a lot of these chunks, a lot of these chapters, num- just the whole book of Numbers, the title of the book is Numbers. They're hard to go through if all we do is just read them. So we have to take time to really get into the word and what does it mean. Um, last week when we f- um, finished the flood narrative, uh, we finished on this idea of cycles, this repetition that mankind has to do the same old thing over and over and over again. We run around the same old tree and wonder why we're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got to stop running around the tree. God gives us a solution to this, but you can only have that solution God's way. And that's the difficult thing to swallow. That's what nobody that... Not nobody. Everybody who rejects God, that's what they're rejecting. I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. But if we're going to stop the cycles, stop the patterns of pain, suffering, difficulties in this world, we have to believe what God has told us. We have to start following him and 
into directions that we haven't gone before. So, with that in mind, we're going to ask the big question. The big question that actually every single one of us has to answer at some point in our life. And even if you never say anything, you will still answer the question of where do you belong? That is the emphasis of the two chapters that we're going to be going through. Where do you belong? It's one of two places. Either you belong in Babylon the Great, which isn't just the city on the map. Babylon the Great represents the worldly view of life, seeking after pleasure or power or comfort or wealth or things. It's being in Babylon the Great is I'm going to live for me. Where if you are going to live in the house of the Lord, you are going to live in somewhere, you are going to live for someone other than yourself. To live in the house of the Lord means that you're going to follow the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself. You're living for someone else for the rest of your life. You're giving up self in this life is living in the house of the Lord. Where do you belong? So Genesis 10 verse 1, these are the generations that is the beginning of a new thing. We've come across this several times as we've gone through Genesis. These are the generations of heaven and earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations now of Noah. It's beginning a new thing, a new exciting thing or a new terrible thing. But it's something new. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ritha, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, Donadim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havala, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth-ir, Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. And this is our first stopping point. Because as we're reading through this, we're reading a lineage. And lineages should go a certain way. This person begat this person, and then they had other sons and daughters. This person begat this person, and they had other sons and daughters. It's repetitive. It's an expectation of pattern. But all of a sudden, we've stopped, and we said, and by the way, Nimrod. That should stand out like a sore thumb. Why have we stopped on this one particular person? Why did we just highlight his entire life? We didn't do this with any of the other people. Why this guy? And so when we come across lineages and we see something like that that's out of place, it's either because they did something incredibly good or they did something incredibly bad. And this case is actually the latter. Nimrod is described in some particular ways for us. He's described as a mighty man, a mighty hunter, and being before the Lord. And so with that, when we have our modern-day English understanding of this, we lose a lot of the intent behind those words. We think, what's wrong with being mighty? What's wrong with being a great hunter? 
What's wrong with being before the Lord? Those all sound like good things. We're in El Dorado County. Yeah. <laughs> Mighty hunter. But it doesn't mean the same as we think it means. When we go back and read those words, we'll begin with mighty man. That idea of mighty man in the Hebrew means someone who dominates others in battle. So to begin with, he's a warlord. That term mighty hunter can imply animals. But often, particularly within context, it's used to imply someone who hunts down people and enslaves them. He is the world's first tyrant. This is Nimrod. And if we look, he's founding all of these cities that aren't known for good things. He's, found, he's gonna found Babel, which is what our entire next chapter is gonna be about. Babel is Babylon. It's the beginning of all of this. And he's gonna found Nineveh. Nineveh becomes the capital of the Assyrian Empire. If anyone has ever done any sort of research back on the Assyrians. I don't expect most of us have. I've only done it because I do this for a living. But the Assyrian Empire is a terrible, awful, warlike nation that did horrific things to their enemies. We found immense murals that they've done glorifying their horribleness. How awful they were as a nation to their enemies. And their capital is Nineveh, which is the central place of worship for the goddess Ishtar. Now, that's not a name we actually commonly come across in scripture, but you come across the synonym for her name, Ashtoreth. So whenever we read through scripture, throughout all of Kings and Chronicles, when it says, and they had the Ashtoreth poles on the high places that they worshiped, this is who they're worshiping. This is who is drawing them away from the Lord. And it all began in that city that empire came out of. This is his legacy to the world. It's defiance of God. Before the Lord isn't being implied as a good thing. It's implying that he's doing this in spite of God, in defiance of God. I'm doing this in rebellion, and he's leading others along with him, this mighty man before the Lord. Now, an interesting thing I want to highlight on is this power of culture that's going to come into play later on in our, our message today, in that when I said Nimrod for the very first time, did anybody think mighty hunter? No. no. Some of you that have read the passage and are familiar with it, perhaps, but most that aren't terribly familiar, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. When you say Nimrod, we usually think someone who's a incompetence or a nincompoop or just... Not, not real positive annotations here, but definitely not mighty tyrant man. <laughs> but that is how it would have been perceived actually only a short while ago. So what changed? His name used to have had the same kind of connotations as if I were to say Caesar. If I say Caesar, most people think the might of Rome. And that all came about because of what one man, Julius Caesar, did in his lifetime. Before that, it was just someone's last name. If I were to say Hitler, we think genocide, awful, World War II, Holocaust, terrible things. Before Adolf Hitler, it was just someone's last name. So what changed? How did Nimrod stop meaning terrible tyrant hunter mighty man? 
And it's all because, if you would throw up that image, of Bugs Bunny. This is the power of culture. Early on in some of the, um, this is actually one of the more recent uh, renderings, but when about 20 years before that, when Bugs Bunny encounters Elmer Fudd, he goes, hey, uh, what's up, Nimrod? What's up, Mighty Hunter? Because that's what the name means. But is Elmer Fudd a Mighty Hunter? No, he's not. He's a bit of a nincompoop. He's a bit incompetent. And so because Looney Tunes became so iconic in our culture, it changed the meaning of the word. And so everybody of a generation now no longer thinks of Nimrod as this mighty tyrant hunter man. They think of him as Elmer Fudd Nincompoop. (laughs) That is the power of culture. And that's actually going to come to play as we continue along in our narrative. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naftuhim, Pathruisim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaftorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of Canaan dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, the lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. That's an odd phrasing. It doesn't fit in. We should hold that in our mind for a moment. What, what does Eber have to do with this? Why significantly put him out there before the lineage? We're going to grab onto that in a moment. The elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Alam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Ho, Gether, Mash, Arpachshad fathered Shalah, and Shalah fathered Eber. Okay, so what's going on with Eber? To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktam. So this earth dividing portion here is either something really significant politically, culturally, or literally. There's what's called the Peleg theory. I talked about it earlier when the earth split apart. There are some that believe that this is referring to when the earth actually started to split apart and move and shift. But it also could be a talking about the fact that this is the division of the family here. Because we're about to read about the lineage of Joktan, and nothing will be said about Peleg in this chapter. But in the next chapter, we see Peleg's whole lineage, because that lineage leads to Abram. So what we find here, when it says that Shem is the father of all the children of Eber, it's the good and the bad, the ones that were faithful and those that wandered away. The Bible claims everything. It doesn't hide any of the difficult, hard details. It presents them forth. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't try to gloss over or push anything out of the rug. It says, there was a lot that did not go well. And we're going to own up to that. Joktam fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jarah, Haroram, Uzo, Dikla, Obal, 
Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This, is known, this chapter is known as the Table of Nations. If you'd go ahead and put up the map for me. Thank you, Aaron. Um, it's a lot of information to take when it's just all these words jumbled in our head. If we don't have something to apply it to to understand what's being conveyed to us here. The people of the time would have been familiar with these nations that were established. And it's telling us where they all went. And so the descendants of Shem really just stayed here on the Arabian Peninsula. They didn't spread out very far. But Japheth's, they went up and out everywhere. They're going to inhabit most of the earth. And we're not going to hear about them for the majority of Scripture. Basically, all of the Old Testament, this is the last you're really going to hear about them. They come to play again in much more intense focus in the New Testament when we have Caesar coming and dominating Israel. But we don't really hear about them again until then. We mostly hear about the issues with Ham and his descendants. And they went all across Africa. But not just Africa. They made sure that they took the absolute best of the lands they were in before they left. So if, you, if um, I put this map in the back, if you want to look at it afterwards, because it is a lot of information, you'll notice some of the city names in this portion. I still can't reach. I'm still too short. Right here. And most of them are the cities that Nimrod founded. Why right there? It's the Fertile Crescent. It's where all the good lands are there. And then the desert. So before they left, they made sure, hey, we get the best. I'm just going to take it all. And then they moved off into the African regions, which actually that whole region along the Nile is really fertile and beautiful and amazing. That's what they took. They took everything that was good. And they said, you, you can have the sand. And that's where they sent them. And so what's interesting from this is if we go to the next visual, is it's exactly 70 people groups. And I put that one in the back as well. It's impossible for you to read right here. Um, but Israel is not on here. Israel comes from that lineage Peleg that we had talked about. Um, but it's going to be established. It's not established yet. And it seems so convenient that it's exactly 70 nations. They had just exactly the right amount of people. And the, the reality is that they probably had a lot, other, lot more kids than this. They had a lot more sons. They had a lot more daughters. There's a lot of nations that are in existence that aren't listed. So why is that? Why exempt them? This isn't every known nation. This isn't every child. Why? Well, it has some significance to us is particular numbers in Scripture mean something. So as you read through and you come across them, we often miss it because we don't, we don't encounter a whole lot of numerology anymore. But at this time, if something had to do with a seven or a three, that meant something more. It meant holiness. It meant completeness. So there are 70 nations here. It means this is it. This is all the world. This is going to represent everything and everybody. And they all come back to these people. We've kept track. We've drawn all the lineages. We're not just making this up. 
They aren't derived from legends of old. They aren't derived from other gods. They're all descendants of people. That part's actually important because a lot of nations are going to claim divinity. They're going to claim that they are descendant from gods or they're the gods themselves, that they're not mortal men like the rest of us. The claim here is, no, we're, we're all just people and we're all encompassed and we all come from this place. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, which makes sense. They all come from the same family, they haven't spread out. It would, it would just make sense that they have the same words. But what's interesting, with a little bit of space, that starts to change in subtle ways. Just think of America as it is. It's not a small place. We all speak English for the most part here as the language of our nation. But if you speak English in the West, on the West Coast, it's not quite the same as English on the East Coast or English in the Midwest, or English down in the South. There are some subtle differences, usually just in dialect, tonage, how you pronounce certain things, but the majority of the words are still the same. But then you go to some other nations that speak English. Let's just go to the one where it can't derive from, England. And the words now start to change. We've got a little bit more space. We've shifted our culture a bit. We've distanced ourselves. And suddenly, words stop meaning the same thing, even though you're speaking the same language. Because in England, you can go and order, at most pubs, you can get bangers and mash. But we would never say bangers and mash here unless you're in an English pub. Because bangers and mash is sausages and potatoes. It means the same thing, but we wouldn't say it that way. When you're going on a trip, you'd put your luggage in the boot of a car. We would never say that because we call it the trunk. We're speaking the same language, but words have already started to mean different things with a little bit of space, just a couple hundred years. Imagine what it would be like if you had thousands of years of difference in language. Well, I think we can imagine that because we see the world as it is. But at this time, they have all the same language. So how did it come about that we got to where we are now? Excellent question. Let's dive into that. And as, men, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from the, over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there was the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of all the earth. And when I read this, as I've done many times, because as most of us do at different points in our life, we think, I'm going to read through the Bible. We start in Genesis. You almost always make it through at least chapter 11. Usually by chapter 30, we start getting a little weary. But we've read this many times and glossed right over it. And I've often asked, why was that a problem? Why come down and scatter everybody? It's like, it almost felt like just meddling for no reason. 
So I took time to think about it. Why is this a problem? We've just gone through Genesis. We've just gone through some other chapters that were really significant of God setting all these stuff up. So what's the problem? Well, the first part is this. In Genesis 9, which we went through last week, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I know a lot of times we say it's a small world, but in reality, it's a pretty big earth. There's a lot to fill. And how can you fill it if you settle in one place so you're not dispersed? Which is what they've determined to do. No, let's settle here so we don't go all over the face of the earth. So immediately in purpose, it's in defiance of what God has told them to do. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to settle here and we're going to build something so that we don't get spread out. We're not going to do what God wants. Genesis 9, 8 through 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. When God established the covenant, it was with us. It wasn't for us. It wasn't for God. It was with us. Because that's always God's desire and intent is to be with mankind, to be with us through life, to walk with us every single day, to guide us, lead us, to be our king, our savior, to show us this wonderful world and teach us his wisdom to be with us. And what have they decided to do? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's not be defined by the Lord. We're going to do this on our own for me and for mine. When we read out of Genesis 4, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Who decides what is well? God does. Well, that's the, that's the inherent problem that humanity has. That's, an, that's original sin's issue is that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now that I'm going to decide what's good and what's well, I don't want God to define this for me. I don't want to be limited by that. I want to do what I want to do. But if God's the one who decides that, I have to some way put myself in God's place. So let's build a tower. Let's build it to the heavens. When we, look at, at, la, 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 la. when we look back at ancient Mesopotamia and we think tower and we look around, we find some things. They're called ziggurats. They're made of concentric squares that stack on top of each other up to the heavens. And there would have been four staircases in the middle of each side that led up to the very peak. It was thought of as a stairway to the gods, to the heavens. The name of Babylon in their language means stairway of the gods. But at this point, they don't want to worship God. They want to worship themselves. So they want to set their throne on high. They want to claim that divinity. They want to, they want to claim divine rule, because where is the seat of rule in the It's in the heavens. Let's build a tower. Nimrod's going to rule. Nimrod's purposes will stand. We don't need God. And they have one language, and they are one people, meaning they have the same culture and they have one purpose. There is no end to what they will do. Those things all combined make for incredible things that can happen. 
Going back to the previous reference when I was mentioning Hitler. In World War II, Germany was one people, one language, one purpose, one culture, and they dominated all of Europe. They literally rolled right over it. They were winning. They were going to win. It wasn't. The only reason they didn't is because America, which is a very big place filled with a lot of pe diverse people, united in purpose as well against their purpose. If America hadn't done that, the world would look very different today than it does. And so when a people is united, it can be for great things or terrible things. Being united does not always mean good. Germany was united, and what the things they did were terrible. They were living for self for power, for control, for their purposes. America, at that point, chose to love their neighbor as themselves and to stand against those purposes. It's the choice all of us have to make in life. Where do you belong? Do you belong in Babylon the Great? Do you belong in the house of the Lord? And a united people can do great or terrible things. And these people are united under a man named Nimrod, who is the world's first tyrant. If this is allowed to continue, what do we think is going to happen? We read out of, where was it? Isaiah 14. It's talking about a different king. It's talking about the king of Tyre. Pretty sure it's the king of Tyre. It's a prophecy against him, but it's also alluding to the fall of Satan. But it's interesting how Scripture is very illuminating across Scripture. Because when I read this, I thought, this is the same thing it's talking about right now as well. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heavens, of the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And so when we look at this and we say, why did God do this? Because God saw something terrible about to happen. Imagine if he hadn't done anything, what the world would look like when the world's first tyrant had dominated everybody and was uniting them in rebellion against God. And I consider this with a simple thing of scattering the languages, he saved an incredible amount of pain and suffering in this world from ever occurring. And I think about that, what God does, and a lot of people ask a very genuine question is how can God allow suffering and pain and trials and difficulties to happen in the world? And I believe God does certain things to prevent the majority of it from happening, and that should be sobering to us if the majority is being prevented from happening. But also, there's something that needs to take place because God does not desire the death of any of his people. He does not find joy in a death of a single soul. He wants all to come to him and to choose him. And in order to choose him, they have to have a choice. And in order to have a choice, you have to be able to choose no. Yeah, that's right. And that choice of no often leads to pain, suffering, selfishness, the trials and difficulties we see in our world. And it only comes at the, at the expense of a choice. 
Now, what if I told you that God understands that it's causing pain and suffering? But God actually has a solution to that. That in Revelation, it talks about at the end of all things, when the whole earth is judged and the books are opened and those that are in the book of life enter in the kingdom of God, that it talks about the city that comes down and what's in that city. One of the very specific things that's in that city is the tree of life brought back to us from Eden. And the tree of life has 12 fruits of the 12 seasons, and it's used to heal the nations. Well, everyone has died, and they've all been raised again in new bodies. So what is that healing them from? I didn't take time to really deeply consider that until this week, actually. Is that that's what is left? Your body's been redeemed. What else might have gone through scars and hurts and pains and suffering that you can't get rid of? So, what is it healing? It's your very soul, it's healing your emotions, your memories the pain you suffered in this life. And he says, this tree will heal the nations. Something that can make that pain like it never was. And we think about how can God allow the suffering? It's so they can make a choice because I've got a solution for it in the end. But when we look at the scope of time, it's difficult to recognize it because we're here now and it's painful now and it hurts now. But the reality of anything you've, you've healed from you don't feel that anymore. You barely remember it. And God has a solution for this. And I hope that brings some of you comfort with the challenges and the pains and the difficulties of this world that you may have had or you've seen around the world, that God does have a solution, but he has to give people a choice so they can choose him. And so his temporary solution to prevent a lot of pain was to confuse the languages. It doesn't take a lot for a lot to take place. There are seven major language families of the world encompassing about 5,000 languages that are currently on the planet. This is one language family. It's not even the biggest one. This is the language family that we are in. This little spot right there is English. Just regular old English. A little separation, a little bit difference over a couple thousand years goes a long, long way. Now, why is that so significant? Why the language over anything else? When we look at language, we look at the purpose of language is to understand each other, to communicate, to be able to come to terms with one another. And we find that when people speak the same language, they do those things. They can unite over it. What did we see when people came to America, when there was the great melting pot and it said, everybody is welcome? Did we see everybody just meshing together? Did we see everybody trying to overcome those language barriers? No, we didn't. No, we did not. We see things that happen. You can just, you can go to San Francisco right now and you can go to Chinatown. You can go to Little Saigon. You can go to these places where people banded together around their language. Because people will unite over understanding more than purpose. 
But that can actually be a very dangerous and scary thing. Just think about, think about the, we just had an election very recently, and whatever side you're on, I don't need to know. No one needs to know. But you were either on the right or you are on the left. Red, blue, Democrat, Republican, however you want to label it, you leaned one side or the other. How did you vote? Did you vote based off of a deep personal relationship you have with the candidate? Probably not. Maybe some of you, but I would say the majority of you didn't. You voted based on whether or not you could relate to them, whether or not you feel that you could understand their motivations. And you didn't vote for the other person because you just don't get why they think that way. I don't understand how you could possibly come to that conclusion. And so we've segregated over understanding. So if we divide by language and we make everybody not understand each other, then it causes them to distance and to accomplish what God was setting out to accomplish. For one, to reduce pain and suffering, and for two, for you to actually go over the whole face of the earth. Language and culture and unity are powerful things. Which leads us to Babel. Babel is Babylon. It's the name of the city. They're just two different translations of the same thing. But it's more than just a city. That city isn't there anymore. You can go to the place that it was, the country that it was, but the city's gone. So Babylon represents so much more than just the city. It is a world view. The world view that focuses on human sensuality, materialism, and defiance of God. And we are either in one space or the other. We are living for one or the other. We're living in God's kingdom or we're living in the world's kingdom. What are we living for? God has called all of us to him. He's saying, I want all of you to come to me. Because there's terrible things in store for those that want to live for themselves, those that are going to choose Babylon the Great. And it's outlined in Revelations 18. It says, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow. In mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great 
city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. It's a terrible question, but it begs the question, where do you belong? Do you belong in the house of the Lord? That will require you to give up many of these things. Or will you live in the house of Babylon and refuse? Say, no, I'm going to enjoy it now. And I'm going to deny the Lord. And I'm going to convince myself he doesn't exist because I don't want to endure the punishment that was promised. Will you have a little bit more of a positive light as we end? It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Apashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shalah. And Apashad lived another, after he fathered Shalah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shalah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shalah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And when Serug had lived 30 years, or when Reu had lived every father Sarug 207 years, he had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had, fathered, had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. <laughs> so amazingly interesting and compelling literature. At this point, we've identified Abram as the 10th patriarch of this elect line. That part is significant. These are the ones of the elect. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. They went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Is that where they're meant to be? No. They settled. If we settle we will never inherit the promises that are meant to be. We will never see the fullness of what God desires for us if we settle. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. I've read that a lot of times. I never grasped the fullness of what was being conveyed here. And the very next line is going to mean so much more when we take time to digest what we've just read. So I took time Wednesday night and I'd never seen this before. I wrote down the birth of each one and I kept it just in a calendar, essentially, the year they were born. And then I wrote when each one died. And what I found is, when we read out of Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and father's house to the land that I will show you, it means something. Because in 292 years that has passed since the flood to Abram's birth, every single one of those patriarchs is still alive. Every last one of them. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, all the way back to Shem, who was on the boat. They're all still alive when Abram is born. 
when we read Genesis 12:1, it's been 75 years from his birth. He's being called to go. Only two of those patriarchs have died. So when it says, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, he's leaving an incredibly extensive family. They're all still there. Every time I read this, I just assumed they had all died because right before it says, and Terah died. But if we don't take the time to look back and track it and read what's being said and really digest it, we miss that. We miss that Abraham literally left everything he'd ever known. His whole family is still there. And he left because God called him. He was willing to give up everything for God, to go to a place he did not know as terrifying as that might be. And it begs the question, will we? Will we do this? When God calls you, will you go? Will you be willing to leave everything you know because God called you? Out of Matthew 10, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. That is being in the house of Babylon, Babylon the great. If you're going to find your life here and own it here and live it here and have it define you here, you're going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you choose to live in the house of the Lord, to sacrifice, to give up, to live for someone other than yourself, then you'll find what the Lord has promised. Life and life abundant, everlasting life. Things that we can't even comprehend yet, but it requires us to give up something. It requires us to give up self, to love the Lord with everything, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we'll end with the question we began with. Where do you belong?